Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. And so I want to spend these next four weeks leading up to that, uh, leading up to the kickoff of 21 days of prayer and fasting, um, l- conditioning our hearts and our minds around the word of God so we have a right understanding of biblical fasting, right understanding of biblical prayer, and also so that we can kind of address the why. Now, we're going to have to do a broad brushstroke across these really big subjects, but we, we want to address the why because I recognize, especially talking about like fasting, which I'm going to talk about this week and next week, the thing about fasting, it kind of rubs against the grain of our American Christian culture because we, we have been conditioned to believe that the best way to experience God in a more rich and fulfilling way is to add things to our life. We, 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 kinda, we even preach to that end too. Like we, we tell people when they come to us, you know, needing care or whatever, like, oh, well, you know what you need to do is you, you need to read this book and you need to listen to that pastor and you need to attend this group. And we just start heaping more onto our already cluttered lives, thinking that by adding more clutter, we will see God more clearly. And his word says the opposite. Jesus actually teaches us, the word of God actually teaches us throughout history that for people to step into the forum of seeing God most clearly and experiencing his power most significantly, that we don't add, we take away. We strip away, we set aside, we fast. Uh, the, The best definition that I know to share with you of what fasting is, biblical fasting, uh, it, it, it is abstaining from food or other things in parentheses, because let's be honest, we have a lot more gods in our life than just our bellies. Abstaining from, I definitely need to fast foods because like I am thinking about lunch right now and while I'm eating lunch, I'll be thinking about dinner. So like it is a little G God in my heart. So food will be on the list for me. I will be fasting certain foods, that's for sure. Um, and lots of them. Um, what was I telling y'all about? The what now? Oh, the definition. That's good. Yeah, it's it's important. The definition, the best one I I know is um, abstaining from food and other things in parentheses. Abstaining from food and other things for a measured time in order to heighten our hunger for God. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. So I say that to say uh, we're, we're abstaining from food and other things in order to heighten our hunger for God, because the reality of it is, um, we don't hunger for God proportional to his worthiness of us hungering for him. Now, I I would venture to say that many of us, um, part of why you've adopted the rhythms of being a part of Christian community, and some of you even brought your Bibles, that there is some sort of hunger in you for the things of God. But if I ask the question, how many of our hunger for God is directly proportional to his worthiness of our hunger for him? Like not a whole lot of us, if any of us would be able to raise our hands. 
And the reality is, is because we've been so satisfied, we satisfy ourselves with all these cheap, trendy substitutes in our lives, all these little idols and little G-gods that kind of fill up the areas of our life that we long for comfort. And it leaves no room, it just crowds out Jesus being the real comforter and supplier and sustainer for our life. We don't like hunger pains of any kind, not just food related, but like we don't like hunger pains of any kind. We, we like to get things right now. I mean, we, we can order stuff online and it be at our house the next day. Some of y'all are thinking about moving to the city so you can get same day shipping. We can't stand waiting. We hate it. We hate hunger pains so bad. Some of you ladies have a snack in your purse right now. That's us. That's us. And before you know it, like, as we continue to satisfy ourselves with all these quick cheap and trendy things in our life, before you know it, it just kind of crowds out Jesus in our, out of our heart where he really belongs. And that's what fasting is, the people of God entering into intentional suffering on purpose that we bring upon ourselves so that we can heighten our hunger for him, so that every hunger pain of that absent thing that we have set aside for that season is a prompt for us to get into the presence of God, to be satisfied by him instead of the snack in our purse. Uh, That's why we've kind of coined the phraseology here at Grace that, that real fasting is not about abstaining, it's about exchanging. Real fasting is not about abstaining, it's about exchanging. This is not some Lenten sacrifice we're doing. Uh, All too often, I I hear kind of the the language of our church family when we're out in the community and I see it public or whatever. I'll hear people say to each other, what are you giving up for 21 days? You're not giving up anything for 21 days. Or what are you going to sacrifice for 21? You're not sacrificing anything for 21 days. This is not about abstaining. It is about exchanging. It is about over these next four weeks, us prayerfully inviting Jesus to identify for us what the little G gods are in our life, the little idols that are seated upon the throne of our heart where he belongs, asking him to identify those things for us and we're gonna set those things aside for a season and exchange them for his presence and watch what he's gonna do. Now, let me be honest, if we're talking about the throne room of your heart, we're talking about the most significant and vulnerable place of who you are. If and when he points out those little G idols, those little G gods and those idols that are seated upon that throne, everything in you is going to tell you that you shouldn't fast that thing because you won't be able to make it without it. That's how you know it's an idol. The, the very thought of not having that thing in your life is creating this deep dissatisfaction and hunger for it. That's an indication that it's an idol. We'll talk about some of those things, some examples as we go. But, you know, Jesus told us in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And let me help you understand, he's not talking about good behavior. Not blessed are those who hunger and thirst for good behavior, they will be filled. No, that'll be a dissatisfying journey. He's speaking about the righteousness that he is. He's speaking about seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus so they will be filled. But we don't hunger and thirst for Jesus. We hunger and thirst for so many other things. And that's why we're so dissatisfied. 
and why we're so discouraged and depressed because we keep trying to fill the voids of our heart with something that is temporary. When God has designed us, we are spirit beings with physical bodies and he has designed us with eternity in mind. King Solomon even said in Ecclesiastes chapter three that God placed eternity in the hearts of men. There's something in deep within your spirit that longs for Jesus, cries out for Jesus, needs more of Jesus. But the problem is your spirit and your flesh don't communicate very well. And so as your spirit has these deep longings and groanings to be satisfied by God, to be in the presence of God, to be transformed by God, your flesh sees the symptoms and says, oh spirit, I, I, I see that you're dissatisfied, you're struggling. You ought to supersize that order, that'll make you feel better. Your flesh doesn't understand what your spirit's trying to say. They don't communicate well. That, that's why in, a, in the work of discipleship, we are learning to, to get our flesh to yield to the power of Christ that is within us, to, to, to yield to his word and his ways. Because as my spirit cries out like, oh, I need more of Jesus. I'm so dissatisfied. I, I long for him. I long to find my peace in him and my comfort in him. My, my flesh is over here saying, well, if, if you just get a bigger boat, then you'll be happy. That'll fix the problem. Just put that vacation on the credit card like it's okay, you deserve it. And the thing is we do the thing. We take on the debt, we make the purchase, we eat the thing, and we're no more satisfied after the fact than we were before. Haven't you noticed? Because God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. God has placed this void in us that longs for him and him alone. And as long as we continue believing the lie from the enemy that if, well, if we can just add a few more things, that'll make me feel better, we're gonna continue to unravel. And so that's why we fast, to realign our hearts with him, not to abstain from anything, but to exchange as we take stuff off the throne of our life and put Jesus right back where he belongs. Now, which, which brings up, the question that I ask myself, and I imagine some of you are asking yourselves, and that question is, well, can't I satisfy like my physical cravings in life and grow spiritually in my life all at the same time? You know what I'm saying? Can't I just add a more Bible study or more worship or more prayer or more small group time while I'm you know, feeding my flesh over here? And the answer is, no. Oh, come on, Dustin. I like to put that to the test for this 21 days. I'm going to try to be super selfish and super surrendered to Jesus all at the same time. It doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is because part of the way that God designed you is he designed you with a capacity for fulfillment. In other words, limits. You can only be so satisfied, believe it or not. I mean, if you, don't, if you don't believe me, the best example could be, remember that time this week where you ate too much for lunch and you were useless the rest of the day? Because you have a fulfillment capacity. You, you, you kind of hit a lid if you are too satisfied and it makes you useless everywhere else. So as we continue to like try to satisfy our flesh, our spirit wanes. Because we hit those fulfillment capacities in our life and like, 
As we are being satisfied physically and with our cravings and whatever it is, it's like we start to neglect those spiritual things in our life. And so we actually see this happen in Jesus's ministry in John chapter four. We see it happen with Jesus and with the disciples in this really interesting kind of parallel between Jesus and the disciples based on this fulfillment capacity thing we're talking about. And it says in John chapter four, it says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist was, although Jesus himself wasn't baptizing anybody, the disciples were, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. Now every good Jew on the way to Galilee would walk around Samaria because you didn't wanna be around those heathens that were outside of the grace of God. But Jesus, on the other hand, walked through Samaria right through the middle of it. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Long day walking and journeying. I'm sure there was interesting conversation between him and his disciples as to why in the world we're walking through Samaria. Jews don't like Samaritans. Samaritans don't like Jews. And here Jesus is walking right through the heart of Samaritan country and even stops to have a seat on the well, which would have been a central hub of where people would come to get their needs met. He's right in the heart of the whole thing. And at this point, John introduces two stories to us happening simultaneously, running parallel. Story number one, we don't have a lot of time to talk about, but story number two, we're gonna kind of camp out on as a part of our conversation today. So verse seven says, so they're at the sixth hour, it's lunchtime, here Jesus and the disciples are approaching Jacob's well. Story number one, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. That's story number one, the famous story of the woman at the well. Story number two, while this is happening, Jesus is having this conversation with this Samaritan woman at the well. Story number two kicks off in verse eight when it says, his disciples had gone away, went away into the city to buy food. That's story number two happening. So the curtain closes, the disciples are gone, it reopens. It's Jesus seated at this well having a conversation with this lady. And what you'll read when you go back and read this for yourself this afternoon and the rest of chapter four, Jesus has an incredible conversation with this woman who very much so was a reject from her society. And Jesus identifies this issue in her life of like just, just chronic failed relationships that she had been married and divorced five different times and the dude that she was living with this time was not her husband and Jesus identifies that sin issue in her life. And we know that this girl had been a reject from her society because ladies oftentimes traveled to the well in the mornings and in the evenings to be able to get the water that their family needed. But they always travel in packs and they always do it when it's cool. And this lady travels to the well by herself in the heat of the day because she didn't want to run into anybody. She was too ashamed and too embarrassed of who she was, of her tattered life, and here seated on the well that she had come to get water from is this guy named Jesus. And Jesus asked her to get a drink for him. And she tells him, like, you didn't even bring anything to get water out of the well. Like, what are you, what are you doing? He says, well, if you would have known who I was, then you wouldn't, then I wouldn't have had to ask you for a drink. You would have been asking me for a drink, a drink of living water, one that you will never thirst from again. 
and he continues to minister to this lady and she, he lets her know that even though all the worship of God up until this point was happening in Jerusalem, that one day worship was gonna break out of Jerusalem. Revival was gonna hit the streets even of Gentile countries because God was looking for himself, those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And she says, you, you speak as if you're the Christ, the Messiah, the one that God is supposed to send. And he says, you have said rightly because I am he. She is so transformed by this concussion of meeting God on the well that she leaves her water jar. She goes into the city and begins to tell all these people who he, she has no credibility with. She begins to tell all these people about what he has said and what he has done and revival begins to break out through the city as they became, as they become uh, believers in him. And then about that time, is when the disciples show back up and we pick back up with story number two. In verse 31, as revival's breaking out through the city, as this woman is declaring the glory of God and her encounter with Jesus, we get to verse 31 and it says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, did, did he sneak some snacks in here or something? I mean, what? has someone brought you something else to eat? I mean, what do you mean you've had something to eat that we don't know nothing about? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Uh, let me tell you what's happening here in the backdrop. We see this chronic over and over again in the life of the disciples. They're, they're always being preoccupied with food. The Pharisees actually criticize the apostles. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees criticize them for every time they walk through somebody's field, they'll be snapping the heads of grain off, just snacking on it as they were going through the town. Jesus actually criticized them as well in Luke chapter 12 when he reminded them, Chick-fil-A is not life. Life is more than food. Luke chapter 12. Matthew chapter 14, also we saw in the book of Mark, when we studied the book of Mark not too long ago, Jesus ministered to 5, 10, 15,000 people on a hillside one day. And after Jesus ministered to them, the disciples came up to Jesus and said, uh, it's, it's been a long day and everybody's tired. And so we need to send these people away because we need to get something to eat. And Jesus said to the disciples, you give them something to eat. This was this ongoing pattern in the life of the disciples that they would constantly be worried about satisfying themselves physically and in doing so, they would miss the miracle that was happening right in front of them all the time. And here in this moment where Jesus, they come back and they bring Jesus a sandwich from town and they said, Rabbi, you, you need to eat something. Right? It's been a while since you ate. And Jesus' response to them is, I've been so satisfied by what has just happened here in the spiritual that my physical hunger has gone away. I, I ate of something more substantial. I ate of the presence of God. And it changed everything. And literally we see this, we see this mirror image of this situation happening where the disciples had become so physically satisfied that they grew spiritually numb. But Jesus had been so spiritually satisfied that his physical hunger became numb. And we see this capacity thing happening, capacity limitations in the lives of the disciples and even in Jesus right here. 
And this reminds us as a people, because we so quickly just throw in these, these physical remedies to our life to try to bring us comfort and bring us healing and consolement that we want, like that we carry these little G gods around with us in our pocket to make sure we don't go hungry for too long. And Jesus invites us to step away from that for a time, to set those things aside for a time so that he could be the satisfier for us that he was really meant to be for us. And he really is the only one that can satisfy. If you haven't noticed, like we fill our lives with so much clutter trying to be satisfied that we crowd out the presence of Jesus in our hearts from being the satisfier. That's when we wake up in the morning and, and we run to the bathroom real quick and we flip on the coffee maker and then you wait until you've had your first cup of coffee before you wake the kids up and while the kids are waking up, you flip on the news and you make sure they have some breakfast and then you make sure they brush their teeth and they put on the right clothes for school that match and you send them back into the room because they came out looking ridiculous and you say you ain't going to school like that and so they go back in there and they change and then you finally get them loaded up in the car and you had to reheat your coffee three times because you never actually got around to drinking it. And you finally get them in the car and you get halfway down the road. I mean, you're almost out of the neighborhood and then one of the kids remembers that they forgot their soccer cleats. And so you gotta go back to the house to pick up the soccer cleats only to realize that one of the other kids left their backpack as well. And so you have the conversation in the car. If, if, if little Jimmy wouldn't have left his soccer cleats, we'd have got all the way to school and you wouldn't have had your backpack. What's up with that? You gotta pay attention. You gotta do this stuff. I can't do all this stuff for you. It's time for you to grow up. You're in the fifth grade. And then you load them up in the car and then you take them to school. And on your way to school, you are just thinking about all the stuff you have to do today and you're just feeling the weight of the world crushing in on your shoulders. You finally drop the kids off at school and you sprint off to work and you go to work and you do whatever it is that you have to do throughout the day and you're exhausted and you're expending yourself trying to take care of your family. You're trying to find little spots where you can have a snack or have something to eat and by the end of the work day, you gotta leave work a little bit early because you gotta pick them up from school and then you go take them to soccer practice. While they're at soccer practice, you run to the gym just to try to get 30 minutes into yourself on the treadmill because you have this like new year, new me thing going on and you're trying to like improve your life and so you hop on the treadmill for about 30 minutes and then you got to run back and pick them up from the soccer field and then you bring the kids back home and you got to get them something to eat of course and so you're preparing a meal while they're doing their homework and they got more questions about their homework than you ever thought they would and you realize that you don't you're really not smarter than a fifth grader after all because you have no idea what it is that they're studying. I mean, you can't even remember that stuff, but you try your best to help, and when they finally get done, they eat dinner, and then you send them into the bathroom to finally get a bath and get ready for bed and brush their teeth, and you finally put them to bed, and when they do, you come out to the living room, you just collapse on the couch, and you pull up your Netflix, and you start binge-watching your favorite shows until your eyes get so heavy that you can't stay awake, and you finally shut off the lights and go to bed. And we wonder why we don't hunger for God. Our life is just crammed full of every other satisfier and every other thing and every other rhythm and every other habit and every other important and good thing and all the stuff, all the lesser things and we wonder why we don't hunger for God. This is why he calls us to fast. This is why he calls us to set aside food or other things. Those little G gods in our heart for a season to realign our hearts around him and to focus completely and totally on him. This is why the apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, I urge you as sojourners. This is a reminder from Peter. That this is not your home, by the way, so don't get so caught up in it. And all of its demands and all of its rhythms, like you are a kingdom people that are created for the glory of God. 
This thing called life is just temporary and we are just passing through, Peter says. We're just sojourners. You're on a business trip for the heavenly father to be missionaries and good newsers to herald the fact that his kingdom is here and his kingdom is near and that he is worthy of worship and make disciples. Like we're just on a business trip and we're just temporary here. You're sojourners, Peter says. I urge you as sojourners to abstain from your passions or your desires, depending on what translation you're using, to abstain from your passion or desires, which is that word epithumia, that, that where we get like that thermal energy, like this burning inside of us that we need something, that we want something, that we crave something. He says you need to abstain from those passions because they wage war against your soul. Now, naturally, some of those epithumias, these passions that we have, some of them are inherently sinful. Peter is calling us to abstain from them forever, to walk away from those sinful habits and patterns in our life. But not everything that we are desirous of or passionate for in our life is inherently sinful. And at which point, Peter is encouraging us to abstain from even those things for a time because even those things wage war against our soul. In other words, even some of the good stuff of our life that at one time empowered us, if we're not careful to abstain from those things rhythmically, intentionally, the very thing that used to empower us can gain power over us. It can become a God in our life without us even realizing it. The old rascally devils, he's slippery. He knows you won't believe big lies, so he just tells you a bunch of little ones. And one of those things that Peter calls us back to is abstaining from those passions of our flesh. In the time, I use this example almost every year because it just kind of hits us on a broad scope. But how many of y'all, before you wake up, how many of y'all actually bought the coffee pot that wakes you up for you and it starts brewing it before you wake up? So that as soon as you roll out of bed, I mean, you're running in there. How many of y'all like run? The first thing you do is you run out there and get you a cup of coffee. Like you're one of those people that say like, don't talk to me until I've had my third cup of coffee. You're one of those people that like, if you did not drink your cup of coffee for like a day or two in a row, then you'd have a splitting headache. You, you would literally go through withdrawals. You know, you're one of those folks that like, if you don't have that, that moment where you can just sip on your Joe that like, you were gonna be reckless a little bit throughout your day, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, coffee's one of those little things like that the enemy can use in our life. Something that is a good thing that at one time has empowered us but if it's to the point where it now affects who you are, it affects how you act, you'd have withdrawal symptoms if you didn't have it, that tells me something that used to empower you now has power over you. And that means, according to the scriptures, it's an idol. Sounds silly, doesn't it? It's just coffee. Yeah, but that's why Peter says abstain from the desires and the passions of your flesh because they're waging war against your soul. Something so insignificant has now staked claim over your life, over your personality. I use that example because it hits a lot of us. But I mean, fill in the blank. That's why I say fasting is about abstaining from food or in parentheses or other things. Because let's be honest, like we have a lot of pleasures in the world that we live in, particularly living in a country like this. I definitely need to fast some food because I love food. But the reality of it is, is for some of y'all, your little G gods are totally different things but they've crept into your heart and crowded out Jesus off the throne room of your heart. And Peter says that we need to abstain from those cheap and trendy substitutes because they can lay hold of our hearts. They can take control of our lives. And Jesus is the one who was meant to satisfy us. Jesus was the one who was meant to be the thing that we needed so that 
we could be the whole part of who we are throughout the day. Jesus is the one that after a day or two without communing with him, we start to feel withdrawal symptoms. Jesus is the worthy one. Jesus is the one that we need to be running to in our lives. And fasting creates the form where we can step out back into that space. You know, there's a, an ancient story. This is a true story. This is history. I've shared it with you a few years ago. I want to share it with you again because this is just says it well. King Renald III was a fourth century duke in Belgium. He was grossly overweight. Renald was commonly called by his Latin name Crassus, which means fat. After a violent quarrel with Renald's younger brother, Edward led a successful revolt, removing his brother from the throne. Instead of killing Renald, Edward captured him, built a room around his brother and the Newark castle, and promised that Renald could return to his kingship as soon as he could leave the room. This would not have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows and several doors of normal sizes, none of which were locked or barred. To regain his power and his kingdom, all he needed to do was lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother, so each day he sent a variety of delicious foods. Instead of dieting his way out of prison, Renald continued to grow larger. When Edward was accused of cruelty, he would respond, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave any time he wishes. Renald stayed in that room for nearly 10 years and was not released until his younger brother Edward died in battle. And by then, his health was so ravaged that he himself died within a year. I hope you're picking up the reality that this is not a story about food. This is a story about enslavement. This is a story about being so dependent on something that you would be willing to give away the kingdom for a cheap and trendy substitute. Edward just had the nice delicacies and the desserts put in the room. He wasn't force feeding him. But because Renald was so, King Renald was so enslaved by his appetite, what was in front of him seemed more important than the kingdom around him. And that's how he got him in the end. You know, our, our adversary, the devil, works very similarly. He recognizes that because you've loved Jesus for so long and you bring your Bible to church and you're in a small group and you know a handful of Bible verses, he knows he can't lie to you so substantially that you would leave this place of a healthy rhythm of grace in your life to get you all the way over here to flying off the rails in your life. He knows that you wouldn't believe a lie like that. You're way too faithful. You're way too godly. You know too many Bible verses. You go to church too often. But he knows that if he can just lay a buffet of cheap, trendy substitutes in front of you, at least walk over here. And you'll believe that little lie and you'll start to indulge in that thing. Before you know it, you're like, man, this is pretty good. Let me get a little bit more of that. And before you know it, you start getting to a place where you're thinking, man, like this, this is good. You should try it too, because like this is, I need more of this in my life. This is going to be the regular rhythm of who I am and what I do, because this is how important it is to me. And before you know it, you got so much momentum running in the other direction that you can't stop yourself. And this is how we end up over here. 
in the cataclysmic moments of life where our sin and our decisions and our failures have just come crashing down on us. It didn't start right here. He didn't lie to get you to run over here. He just told a thousand lies along the way to get us to ease our way over there. He's just putting the food in front of you. And it doesn't seem like that big a deal just to have another bite. I mean, that's not gonna affect you. You'll eventually lose the weight and get out of prison. But the reality of it is it stakes claim over our life. And Peter says, abstain from the passions of your flesh. That's why we fast. That's why we step into the form of being transformed by Jesus by stripping away for a time, not adding to the plate. I'm gonna continue to pray for you as I'm praying for me over these next four weeks as you are inviting Jesus to reveal to you what are the little G gods sitting on the throne of my heart that I'm gonna set aside for 21 days and exchange them for your presence? We're not abstaining, we're exchanging. What is it that you want me to exchange for your presence in 21 days? You know, I actually had some close friends of Ansley and mine. It was a powerful, powerful thing God did in their life. They were believers in Jesus. They would have told you that throughout their life, and, but they never had really intentional rhythms. Uh, they, they weren't involved in a church family. They, they, they didn't do the things that you would typically associate with someone who's serious about their relationship with the Lord. And honestly, it's because they weren't serious. But they heard this call to fast and pray for 21 days. They're part of our church family now. Um, they heard this call to fast and pray for 21 days. And they're people that like challenges. So they, they kind of took it as a challenge. But they say, you know, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Let's not just exchange something petty for 21 days and pretend like God is moved by us setting aside cheeseburgers for 21 days. He does not care. But we're going to exchange. We're going to take something that legitimately consumes our life and we're going to set it aside for 21 days. We're going to put Jesus right in the middle of that throne. And they have a regular habit like many of us do when they come home at night after dinner and they unwind. They just, they're just watching TV together. They watch a lot of movies and shows or whatever together. And they decided for 21 days, we're going to set that aside. And in the time where we would have been doing that, we're going to replace that with reading through the New Testament. We're just going to as individuals, we're going to read through the New Testament over 21 days, and each night we'll spend an hour or spend some time reading as individuals, and then we'll come together and talk about what we read and what we heard. And they did this for 21 straight days, and it radically transformed their life. Just the Word of God. No preachers necessary. No worship conference necessary. No room full of people necessary. Just the Word of God. And someone who is willing to exchange the little G gods of their life, put Jesus back on the throne. He wants to perform those same radical miracles in your life. But he's inviting you through this time of fasting to realize that we have just cluttered our lives with so much nonsense that it's crowded out the space for Jesus to be the all-consuming fire in our world that he is meant to be and longs to be for you. So we're going to fast and we're going to pray. And as we continue to move in that direction, let's pray about that right now, asking the Lord to show us what it is that he would have us remove from the throne of our heart. Lord Jesus, would you show us? You know what it is because you're the one who has had to step aside. And I thank you for your mercy and your patience and your kindness. Lord, that you have stepped aside and let us clutter our hearts with lesser gods. But Lord, we want for you to regain full control over us. We want you to be seated upon the throne of who we are. And so Lord, would you show us what those idols are? And would you provide every ounce of the courage it's going to take for us to acknowledge the reality that they're there and for us to set them aside and exchange them with your presence? 
Lord, we ask that you would do that great work in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.